hello and welcome back to How's the Water, our infrequent podcast about books, literature, and their authors. My name is Sienna, and as ever, I'm joined by my very English colleague, Gary. How are you doing today? Hi. Well, as you said, I'm very English. So even if I was feeling bad, I would just tell you that I was fine and then start talking about the weather. So, uh, but I am fine, actually, as it happens to be. Uh, nice and reliable. Yeah, I appreciate about you guys. (laughs) Very, very steady. Okay, so today we are also looking at a British novel, and that is White's Teeth, the debut novel of Zadie Smith, first published back in the year 2000, or Y2K, as people of my age unforgivably used to refer to it. Um, How did you first hear about this? It's a pretty famous novel, so how did you first hear about it? Well, famous as it is, I'm not sure I was aware of it until I believe it was like 2017. I was given white teeth by a friend that I had in Madrid who was part of a, like a feminist book club and they didn't have space for any more people to join, but she had said, Oh, well, we just read this and you can follow along with it. If you want, here's my copy. And I'll just kind of, if you want, if you're interested in reading the things that we're reading, um, you can start with this. And it just sat on my shelf the whole time I lived there. So for like two and a half years, it was just there and I never got around to reading it. And I'm not really sure why. I think I was just quite busy. I wasn't reading as much as I do now, to be honest. I actually thought that Zadie Smith was American. I think I got her confused with Yagyasi, who is American. And I think she's um, like Ghanaian and from Alabama or something like that. And so for okay. some reason I was confused about, I didn't, that's how little I knew about this book and it just sat on my shelf for ages. And then we moved and gave all our books away. And that's all I knew of white teeth essentially. So Zadie Smith, that was never on my radar. And I'm not sure if that is because she wasn't as famous in mm. the States or if it's just down to my ignorance. And I suspect it's probably the latter. <laughs> but what I, about what about you? How did you first hear about it? I think you should be fair to yourself. It's probably only 50%. You know, probably. <laughs> yeah. Well, as you know, my finger is very much on the pulse of literature. Mm-hmm. Um, so I heard of White Teeth when it came out, I think, because, yeah, obviously I'm British and I was of an age where I would probably have been aware of the hype yeah. around the novel. yeah. But like you, it was it was more than likely through another person just telling me about it or reading it or something like that. So, you know, it was the same kind of thing. And I don't think I ever bought a copy or really seriously considered reading it until mm-hmm. we had a little conversation about what possible books that we'd like to record and, uh, mm-hmm. on. And then we decided on this. So in a way, it wasn't that different from your story, really. Yeah. So if you were aware of it in the year 2000, then does that mean that there was a fair bit of hype around it when it came out? Oh yeah. Yeah. It was I think quite so. um, widely. I think it won a ton of awards the year that it came out. Having a look at the back of my copy now, where it's normally like in big writing, your awards, it's one, I can't see any, but I think you're right. I think that it did win, win a, a few prizes. Yeah. There was a fair bit of, Sound and fury around it, I guess. I, that's maybe too much of a negative word. It got a lot of acclaim. And um, I, I have the awards. Would you like oh, to do hear you? them? Yes. Mm-hmm. Edit all the last bit out, I said, and just go to, straight to the awards. It won the James Tate Black Memorial Prize, the Whitbread First Novel Award, and the Guardian First Book Award. Yeah. It did very, very well, I think, critically and commercially when it came out. And I think to some extent, because uh, Zadie Smith is of mixed race, it was seen as a kind of triumph of multicultural Britain. Mm. That this, and obviously a woman as well, that this young, she was very young at the time, mm-hmm. woman of mixed race could publish this, this novel and it could be really good, really readable, win all these awards. And uh, I don't think it takes anything away from the novel to say that a lot of that hype was probably quite misplaced you know in the it was almost like ah multiculturalism has triumphed and won Uh and and now we're all going to march on together into a better world and i'm not sure that 
the events of the past 20 or so odd years would um, prove that to be correct. Mm-hmm. And I think Zadie Smith, having listened to a few things about her in the lead up to this, or a few things not about her, a few things in which she speaks in, would um, largely agree with with that, I think. Yeah, one of the podcasts that I listened to that had her on it, in it, she talked about white teeth and, you know, because now she's 21 years away from having written it and published it. And she says that she can't even look at it anymore. And when she does, she just thinks like, oh, gosh, I can't believe I wrote this. It's like so, so far away. And she just thinks it's very much a young person's book. Um, doesn't really look back on it as if it was like this huge work of sophistication or anything either. Yeah. I think, yeah, she seems to see it as like quite a callow kind of novel, doesn't she? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, she did actually write it as we're going to hear or begin writing it while she was still at university. Mm -hmm. So, but I don't know if the way that she sees it is attached to the hype that it received and the, and the stuff that I was talking about, or more just that she looks back on it or something that she wrote when she was very young and finds it hard to read. Mm-hmm. Um, that then I think, I think like a lot of people would. So are you ever influenced by the hype around a novel and the release of a novel? Um, it would really, it'd be really easy to say, no, no, I'm above all that. I would say <laughs> that it probably I am, but not when it comes to more literate, works probably when it when I'm reading like thrillers or something like that I've definitely read some of those largely because they seem to be so popular and have done so well Mm -hmm. so I think of books like the girl with the dragon tattoo and all of those I read all of those oh you did yeah yeah. (laughs) and uh, the girl on the train I've read that as well and I think a lot of that is about just the hype around it these books are easy to come across quite gone girl Gone Girl as well. Uh, yeah, I read that because I saw the film. I th- huh. Yeah, Gone Girl yeah. was so, another book that that girl gave me as part of her feminist book club reading. Oh, I see. Collection. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, we could do a, another episode on Gone Girl. Maybe that would be interesting. I don't know if I'd see that as <laughs> feminist in many ways. I, I mean, I thought the movie was better. It's one of those rare things where I was more entertained by the film than the than the book, to be honest. But but the, this isn't about Gone Girl. This is about White Teeth. No, no. <laughs> by Zadie Smith. <laughs> It is. So let's so we get back to White Teeth and Zadie Swift by having me read the first part of her bio. Yes, please do. Okay, here goes. So Zadie Smith was actually born Sadie Smith in 1975 in Willston in the northwest of London, which is also the setting for much of White Teeth. She changed her name from Sadie to Zadie at the age of 14 because of a boy she liked who also had a Z in his name. Huh. I wonder where that boy is now. <laughs> uh, probably father, not as interesting and cool as she is. No, probably not, no. Uh, not many of us are. Mm-hmm. Uh, her father, Harvey, was an Englishman who was 30 years older than her Jamaican mother, who had emigrated from the Caribbean to England six years before Sadie, or Sadie, was born. She says now that her parents didn't really like each other, but were united in giving her and her siblings a happy childhood. So that's a quote from uh, her appearance on Desert Island Discs. During her childhood, Zadie was keen on music. She was interested in tap dancing, contemplated going into musical theatre, and during university even earned money as a jazz singer in hotel lobbies and old people's homes. Uh, Reading voraciously from a young age, she first began writing at the age of five. Age 15, she fell from a top floor window when smoking out of it, badly breaking her leg. She also says she was encased in marijuana during her adolescence, but doesn't smoke it anymore as she can't stand the fogginess it brings to her brain. Some of us don't need marijuana for that, to be honest with you. Oh, good for you. (laughs) (laughs) After attending state schools in London, she studied English literature at King's College, which is part of Cambridge University. Uh, winning this place with the help of a friend's dad. She graduated with a 2-1. While studying there, she wrote and published a number of short stories in the Mays Anthology, which is an anthology that incorporates writing by students from both Cambridge and Oxford universities. This won her the attention of publishing companies, which in turn meant that her debut novel, White Teeth, was well known in the publishing world before it was even complete. This unfinished manuscript was the subject of a bidding war, which was eventually won by Hamish Hamilton. 
The book was finished while Smith was still studying at Cambridge and wasn't published until the year 2000, where it garnered critical acclaim and became an instant crossover success and bestseller. White Teeth was also adapted into a Channel 4 TV series in 2002, more of which later. It sounds like she uh, she keeps describing herself in these podcasts we listen to uh, as a nerd, but she actually seemed like she was quite cool when she was a teenager because she was like, oh, smoking cigarettes and fell out a window. That's such a good story. Like, oh yeah, I was trying to hide it from my mother and I fell out a window and broke my leg. And like, um, oh, I was just smoking weed all the time and stuff. And then she just goes to, she goes on to Cambridge University and it just sounds like she's just one of those, those people who manages to be really, really intelligent and also just fucking cool at the same time. Yeah. She seems very cool when you hear her speaking and talking doesn't she but yeah Mm -hmm. she's quite self-deprecating about how she was when she was younger there's quite funny stories about how she met her husband and she just like stalked him at university (laughs) or just followed him around and hung around and uh, eventually that got her somewhere I I imagine he thought a bit more of her once she became an incredibly popular published writer as well well you know, who would think? <laughs> yeah, probably. probably. <laughs> like, yeah. oh, who's this person <laughs> that's been stalking me? Shall we move on to the plot summary? Yes. Yeah, so the novel comprises four different parts, each of which is set during a different era and focuses on different individuals from the novel's menagerie of related characters. Sure. And would you like to tell us what happens in part one of White Teeth? The novel opens on New Year's Day, 1975. We meet Archibald Jones, a 47-year-old resident of Wilsdon, who, after his wife has walked out on him, has decided to gas himself in his car. However, after he's interrupted and stopped by a butcher whose delivery he's blocking, he discovers a new enthusiasm for life. Archie flips a coin. He often makes important decisions in this way, and finds himself at a New Year's party at a commune where he meets the beautiful and much younger Clara Bowden, a Jamaican woman who is the daughter of a devout Jehovah's Witness. Clara has been involved with Ryan Topps, an unattractive wannabe mod who's about her age, but their involvement with each other had ended when Ryan converted to Jehovah, Jehovahism. Yeah. It has, her mother got involved somehow with that. It clearly just aw- awakens something in him, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It's, it doesn't take long either, does it? He goes from like kind of rebellious mod to Jehovah's Witness in like it, a day or so, I think. Yeah. So, and then like, oh, Clara, you really need to rethink your life and stuff. And she's like, what the fuck? Can you imagine how awkward it would be? And annoying. Yeah. She sort of pursues him, doesn't she, for quite a long time and then eventually wins out with him then he sort of goes over to her mother's side. Uh, That's that's quite a funny little twist that I like. And there's little twists and things like that all through the book that are very entertaining. Yeah, yeah. Archie's best friend, Samad Iqbal, has recently emigrated from Bangladesh to live in Wilsdon. The two met just before the end of the Second World War in 1945 when they served together on a tank crew. Their tank breaks down in a remote part of Europe and the rest of the crew are murdered, leaving Samal and Archie isolated. They don't learn about the end of the war until Soviet soldiers arrive on the scene. The war has been over for like two weeks before they realized it. Yeah, they're completely unaware. Yeah, it's happened. Yeah, they're just kind of hanging out by this tank. Well, and the local people they're hanging out with don't want them to know because they're spending American money or they're spending British money on like restaurants and gambling and they're just having a nice time. And the locals are like, man, I hope these people never leave. They never figure out that the war is over and they don't actually have to be here. Uh, (laughs) They also become aware of the presence of a possible war criminal within the local area in the form of Dr. Perot. After leading a vainglorious charge to the doctor's residence and finding themselves alone with the doctor, the two decide to kill him. And Archie marches off with him at gunpoint and returns to Samad alone. And that's the end of part one. So we've got a bit of present day going on in 1975, and then it's told from the perspective of the past. It kind of backtracks, and that happens very often in this book, going backwards and forwards. Yeah, quite a lot of flashbacks Mm -hmm. going on. Yeah. What did you think of part one? I really liked part one. I 
enjoyed. It's quite filmic, I think, the opening where you kind of meet him. He's trying to do this terrible thing, and then you, and then it stopped for a fairly comic reason. Then you just kind of follow Archie, don't you? As he sort of drives and he arrives at this commune, and then he meets these people, and then he gets involved with Clara. It's mm-hmm. really fast. I don't think I was aware of how funny the book was. It's mm-hmm. a comic novel, definitely, but I was surprised by that and found it funny. It wasn't just a surprise that it was funny humour, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it hit home with me in quite a large way. I like the characters, I like the pace, and I like the little surprises as well. And then I always like a flashback. I'm a sucker for that. <laughs> Yeah, I really, really liked the way that she transitions between the parts, Mm -hmm. especially in part one, when you have, well, in part one, so each part of the book is separated into little chapters. So I should say that the way that she segues and transitions between the chapters is quite good. So chapter one is all about Archie and this horrible thing that he's going to do and how he meets Clara. And then at the end of his time, like meeting Clara, it explains, it just goes straight into like, oh, Clara, Clara Bowden seemed really taken with him immediately. And it was all because she's trying to get away from this other guy. And then it just goes straight into that story and what's been going on with her the last few months and the few months before she meets Archie. And that is so good. The way that it just very seamlessly and quickly and unexpectedly just turns the minute that you think, oh, we're getting to know this guy. It just goes straight into what Clara's doing and what she's been up to. And that's um, one of the one of the first things that I really, really liked about the book. Yeah. When that happens in a book, I think it's always a good sign that when it goes to somebody else and you might be thinking, oh, no, I was enjoying hearing about Archie. And then it, it, they start to about Clara and then very quickly, you're like, oh, no, I'm really enjoying hearing about mm-hmm. Clara now. So it's great. I'm, I know these two people from the book. You know, it's a sign of good plotting, I think, and good writing. Oh, yeah, most definitely. So, uh, yeah, it was just a very, very good beginning to it. And it was a very much it's very much a page turner kind of book. Would you like to get into part two? Part two focuses more on Samad and his family. His wife is Alsana, who he married in a traditional arranged marriage. Uh, He is a Bengali Muslim who works as a waiter in a restaurant, a position he finds demeaning. He and Archie frequently pass the time in O'Connell's, which for me is brilliantly described. (laughs) He's obsessed with his supposed great-grandfather, Mengel Pendi, a real-life soldier who fired at the first shot in the Indian uprising of 1857. The shot missed, though. Yeah. Which is kind of sort of poignant in a way, I Mm -hmm. think. Um, in terms of the relationship between Samad and and his ancestor, Mm -hmm. um, who he reveres. Uh, He and Alsana have twin boys, Majid and Milat, who have strongly contrasting personalities, to say the least. We'll hear more of these two later. He finds his devotion to Islam tested by contemporary England. He drinks, masturbates, and begins a brief affair with his children's music teacher. Nearly caught in this liaison by his children, he ends it and decides to affirm his faith by sending one of the twins to be educated in Bangladesh. He can only afford to send one of them. He hides this plan from his wife, and after much toing and froing, he decides to send Majid, who is much more studious than his already rebellious and mouthy brother, in the belief that he will be better served by a more traditionally Islamic faith-based continuance of his upbringing and education. Easy for you to say. Okay, and that's the end of part two. Um, It ends with Samad driving the twins to the airport, I think, and he's about to put Majid on the plane. Yeah, it's a very sad kind of ending to that part. Yeah, it is really, yeah. Um, Do you have any thoughts on this part? It's a sign of good writing that immediately, you know, part two just starts with a completely different family and you get introduced to Samad, of, of course, in part one, but part two is very much just about him and Alsana and their ancestors and their family and their children. And it's such a joy to read that as well. 
you just really get a flavor for people who come to the UK from a completely different cultural background and they are completely at odds with the culture that they're living in and wanting to hang on to their roots, essentially, and the fight and the struggle inside you to, to keep that culture alive and then seeing it in their children as well. The, the kids are starting to like grow up and listen to Michael Jackson and their kids are, um, I think one of them, it's, I can't remember if it's Majid or Millat. He tells his friends to call him by a, like a, a white Western name that instead of is, that's Majid. Is it Majid who does yeah, that? His friend comes yeah. to the door and says, Oh, is Tommy home or something? And they're like, what? And Mark, Mark, Mark I think, Mark. Yeah. And then Majid comes and is like, yeah, the people call me Mark at school. And so you've got, and then he sees this as like a deterioration of like the the family line. And it's all because like they're living in this evil Western British culture. And I think that's, it's, it's just so nice to read because you forget about that struggle that a lot of immigrant families have. And it's not a struggle Maybe it's easier now with globalization, I couldn't say, but I would imagine that a lot of families struggle with that all the time to this day. So, you know, the kids are starting to listen to music that the parents might not agree with, speaking in a more local language that the parents don't understand as well, uh, shrugging off like religious traditions that their parents really cling to. So I really, really liked, you know, she, Zadie Smith just brings all of that in to this part and it makes you really thoughtful. Yeah, definitely. It's like a, there's the sort of normal kind of generation gap that you can often see in real life and mm-hmm. books and TV and films and what have you, but it's really kind of accelerated by the, the changing culture, isn't it? And I think the times that it's set in as well, I think this section is set in the 70s or the 80s, I think. It's in, this is in the 80s. It is, isn't it? Of course, yeah. The kids is... are all about 10 yes or something yeah that's right yeah yeah they're all born in the 70s aren't they a bit like Zadie Smith I suppose that the the kids are of her age aren't they I think yeah but yeah I agree with you yeah you feel a lot of sympathy for Samad and it's not something you see all that often really quite often these stories are told from the perspective I think of the children but this is more about him and how he's seduced by the I don't know the indulgences that you can get in the West, but starts to hate the West and also have a fair bit of self-loathing because of it as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The guilt of enjoying a lot of like Western comforts and Western things. Uh, Yeah. She really, she did a very, very good job in that writing that part really. Um, Who was your favorite character from this older generation? It's hard to say, to be honest, I like Archie, but then I'm now I'm probably of a similar age to Archie of a similar kind of maybe at the uh, beginning of the book yeah, you're yeah. not he's they're all quite a bit older now by now part two so you know yeah that's true actually <laughs> yeah I was probably thinking more of part one because he's not in part two all that much is he I like Archie quite a lot I like all of them really I like Clara too Alsana is kind of biting and funny and yeah, and we just talked about Samad. So probably Archie, but there's nobody that I dislike. There's no one when they come on the page from the four of them that I um, think, oh no, not you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I feel the same. What, what about you? Do you have a favorite though? I probably like Alsana the mm-hmm. best. I think, you know, Archie and Samad get a lot more time in part two. Uh, you see... Clara kind of starts to fade a little bit into the background by part three and four, as everyone gets older and the, the action moves a bit more to the kids, but the struggle with Alsana and Samad and their children is something that kind of plays throughout the book. And like you said, she's very funny. She's very biting. And I don't know. I just, I just really like the way that she's written and her character and the things that she does and, um, so, yeah, probably her, I would say. Good choice. Would you like to tell us what happens in part three? Yes, I would. So part three brings more focus to the next generation of characters. So Irie, who is Archie and Clara's only daughter, 
Irie is in love with Millet, who regards her more as a sister. In order to impress him, she attempts to westernize herself by having her hair straightened. But this goes wrong because, as Zadie Smith explains in the book, the perils of um, relaxing more textured hair is a very fickle process that can't be rushed. And she insists that it's rushed. And so it basically burns all her hair out and she has to get extensions and stuff. Um, Millet, meanwhile, continues on a rebellious road. He smokes weed and cigarettes prodigiously. He womanizes and loves gangster movies such as The Godfather and particularly Goodfellas, which is good taste, I would say. In movies. Yep, good film. Yes. Despite this wrestling with his Islamic faith, he is disenchanted with what he sees as the decadence of the West. This draws him towards fundamentalism, and he eventually joins Keepers of the Eternal and Victorious Islamic Nation, or Kevin, as I think Irie points out, like, you joined a group called Kevin? And he's like, it's mm-hmm. be- we need to figure out a different acronym. But yes. Irie and Millet are drawn into the sphere of the liberal English middle class in the form of the Chalfins, whose son Joshua they attend school with. The mother of this family is Joyce, a horticulturalist. No, a horticulturist. Culturist? Horticulturist, I would say. I'd say Sorry. horticulturist. A horticulturist and best-selling author who is attracted to Millet and wishes to mother him like one of her plants, which isn't creepy at all. The father, Marcus, is a geneticist who is working on a controversial project named Future Mouse, in which he attempts to introduce chemical carcinogens into a mouse and watch the progress of a tumor in it. The Chalfins offer something of a safe haven to the three children. Irie is attracted to the seeming stability of the middle class life and begins working as a kind of clerk for Marcus. Millet runs away from his parents to live with the Chalfins. Majid learns of the Chalfins through Irie. Remember Majid? He went to go be in Bangladesh. Mm-hmm. I do remember him. Well, yes. yeah. yeah. Irie never loses contact with him. And he learns of the Chalfins through her. And he and Marcus begin to write to each other because they're both these kind of intellectual types, essentially. This section introduces contemporary British historical events as we see the families cope with the great storm of October 8th. 1987 and Millet protesting against the publishing of Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses. And that is, that is essentially part three. Yeah. Good. Great reading there. Mm. Do you remember the great storm of October, 1987? Yes, I do remember it. Was it, was it really great? Was it great? It wasn't great in a good way. It was great in a big way. Yeah, it was huge. Yeah. Um, It was like a hurricane that came to England. Yeah. I mean, one of the most famous things about the Great Storm is Michael Fish, the weatherman, meteorologist, who was doing the weather that evening, I think, after the news. Mm -hmm. And he says something like a woman has written in to the BBC saying there's a hurricane coming. (laughs) Don't worry, there isn't. But the problem was there was. So <laughs> so he's that's like how, you know, after years of uh, doing the weather on the BBC, that's what he's most remembered for. Oh, yeah. that's embarrassing. It is a little. <laughs> bit. Yeah, but yeah, I think uh, a number of people died. I was in the northwest of England and I think it hit the southeast much more, much worse. But I do remember the sort of strong winds and things uh-huh. like that. So, yeah. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, it is when you're a child. <laughs> yeah, especially when you come from the uh, one of the countries with the mildest, most mild weather in the world. Mm-hmm. And my question for you about this part is, did you have any thoughts on the Chalfins? Because they are introduced in part three. But, yeah, they're very, they're written as very different types of people. Uh, we're so familiar with Archie and Clara and Samad and Alsana and their families and the way they do things that then they bring in this very, this very like white middle-class educated family and they're just ridiculous. (laughs) Yes. yeah. yeah. So that's, that's mostly just what I think of them, but I think she writes them to be ridiculous as a, as a caricature of like a a white middle-class family, which I suspect is done on purpose. I mean, it's clearly done on purpose, but I feel like it, it makes sense in the way that in a lot of white, a lot of white authors write multicultural families in a certain strange way because they they're from the outside and they don't really know 
Um, yeah. And it ends up just sounding ridiculous and, you know, to those people who read and they're like, we're, we're not like this at all. Um, it's just this weird whitewashed version of what they think like black people are like and, and Muslim people are like. So I suspect, although I'm not sure um, that Zadie Smith wrote them to be this way as a complete, well, for one to highlight the, the class difference. Yeah, I suppose, but also just to maybe make a point like, oh, maybe this is how we see like white upper class people. And yeah, isn't it ridiculous being written in this, this absolutely strange way? Yeah, But that's all just my, my thoughts. So. Yeah, they even have their own noun, don't they? Chalfinism, about <laughs> their sort of their way of life and how they're very insular, doesn't it? Sort of talk about how they don't really have any outside friends. They just spend time with each other. Yeah, 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 definitely. And it slowly drives Joyce a little bit crazy, although she can't really say, but she just says like, she's just surrounded by the perfection of her husband and her children, like at all times. And um, I think if they were a family now, they'd have like a hashtag, a family hashtag, don't you think? Yeah, probably. Instagram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For hashtag all their, their... chalfening. <laughs> Something for, like that. For, for all their sort of social media output. Yeah, yeah. On, on Twitter as well. They definitely have a family Twitter page and a family Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, but they, they're written to be very annoying, very know-it-all, like, um, you know, he's a scientist and she's, well, they're both scientists in a way. And so they're written to be very intelligent, but also very rude, very meddling, very much that they see themselves as superior to other people. And um, also they have this just a lack of awareness as well. So certainly that the parents do. I think Joshua, I mean, gains some kind of self-awareness. He's still slightly ridiculous, I think, but he's more aware of where he comes from and sees sort of problems with it, I think, as he, mm-hmm. as he gets older. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, the pair of them, they're very, very patronizing, aren't they, to Alsana and to Clara. And who, what's the name of the niece that goes round to? Niece of Shame. The niece of shame. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I can't remember her name, but Alsana always goes, Niece of Shame, come here. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's funny. Yeah, I'm looking through the book now. I can't, I can't really remember. But um, anyway, she's um, in a same-sex relationship, the niece of shame, and and they go around to talk to the Chalfans about Mila, and doesn't Joyce say something awful? She just kind of bursts out, like, do you use each oh, other's breasts as pillows or something? Yeah, like? she starts asking really invasive questions about their um, same-sex relationship. Yeah, yeah at the dinner table in front of Marcus, who is just mm-hmm. listening and is like, oh yes, you know, I've all, you know, I've always wanted to ask people this sort of thing, da, 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 da. And there it's like highly offensive, awful, demeaning sort of questions that they're discussing. And these two women yeah. are like, who do you think you are? Yeah. So yeah. yeah, they definitely have that about them where they can just be quite, I don't know, what is that? How would you describe that personality trait? Just- I think it's a kind of, supercilious uh, superiority which yeah. makes you feel entitled to say anything you want and ask people whatever you want because you are uh, you feel that you are better than them but you also kind of have their best interests at heart so you're mm-hmm. helping them so that gives you the right to act in any way that you choose mm. well that definitely describes joyce very much yeah i think so would you like to carry on and finish the book with part four? Yes, sure. So part four, the final part of the book, begins with Majid returning from Bangladesh. However, he ignores his family and begins to work for Marcus as, as his research assistant. Joshua, the Chalfin's son, if you remember, feels rejected by his parents, rebels against them and their values by joining a radical animal rights group Fighting animal torture and exploitations. FATE is the acronym this time. Uh, Milat's involvement with Kevin deepens. Irie, who has long believed herself in love with him, finally succeeds in seducing Milat. However, influenced by his increasingly radical views, he quickly rejects her and she immediately seduces Majid, becoming pregnant but is unsure which of the two twins is the father. Marcus plans to exhibit his Future Mouse project on New Year's Eve, 1992. Kevin, fate, 
as well as the Jehovah's Witnesses who have been present all the way through the novel, uh, all plan to protest against future Nash, which they see as contrary to their various belief systems. The Jehovah's sing outside and Samad goes outside to quieten them. However, he is kind of charmed by their singing and decides against saying anything um, and just returns to the main hall. Uh, on his return, he notices that Marcus's mentor, an elderly professor who has been invited to the event, is the same Dr. Perrault who he and Archie had captured at the end of the war, who he believed Archie had killed. Samad begins to shout at Archie while Milat draws a gun on the professor. Unthinkingly, Archie intervenes between Milat and the professor. The bullet hits him on the leg. He falls and knocks over the mouse's cage, which tumbles to the floor and the animal escapes. In a kind of coda to the novel, the end games of the various characters are depicted. Both Millet and Majid are identified as the culprit of the shooting and serve community service. Joshua and Irie become a couple and join Irie's grandmother in Jamaica. Alsana and Clara join Samad and Alsana at O'Connell's, which finally opens up to women. And that's the end yeah, of this very, crazy book. A very complicated conclusion to the novel, as you could probably hear by the way that I read it. Mm. Yeah, it's um, a very interesting buildup in the very, um, the final chapters, because you've, you've just got all these different pockets of people getting ready to go to this thing. Uh, and they all have their motivations for going and they all have their goals, what they want to achieve when they, when they get there. And it's New Year's Eve, 1992. So you have the Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that this is like, it's going to be the end of the world. Don't mm -hmm. they? Something like that. Yeah, it's, what, it's one of the times that they believe the world is going to end. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, they've got the, you've got that going on. So they think they need to bring the word to like people there. You have Millet who is working with Kevin. You've got Joshua and Fate kind of going there to release the the future mouse. You yeah, know, from his from his prison. They're going to pretend, aren't they, that they've got Joshua as a hostage. So they're going to use that as leverage to try and get the mouse freed, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, obviously he's going along with them as well because he's in love with the leader of the group. Yes, exactly. So you've got all these strange things going on here and all the parents are there and it's supposed to be quite a proud moment for some of the kids, certainly for Majid and for Irie. So yeah. you've got family, you know, family going there. They don't really want to be there, but they're being supportive and that's quite nice. Um, and then the the gun at the end, and Archie manages to escape death, and that strange twist with the the doctor, and then there's a quick flashback. Yes, there's a flashback to the end of the war, isn't there? Where he where he lets it turns out that he had let the doctor go, but never told Samad. Mm -hmm. And Samad, yeah. it's brilliant, it's amazing the way that he, they realize it's the the same guy because he cries red tears. Yes. And they they both Archie looks at it and then Samad comes in from kind of going, oh, Jehovah's Witnesses, you're fine. Just do what you whatever. Keep it down, but do what you want. And he comes back in and sees the guy and he just starts screaming at Archie like, what the <laughs> fuck? You are you lied to me. Our friendship is based on lies. Years. I trusted you. And then everything just suddenly starts to happen. It's actually really good. And I think that would be something very difficult for most people to write yeah. again. Very good job. Like I'm someone who should be judging anybody on doing a good job. <laughs> well, you say that, but I'm going to judge it now. I not as keen on the ending. Oh no! The novel. No, I think it's really contrived. For me, I find the novel a little disappointing uh, in its second half. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, certainly this part, I just found it a bit. A bit much, really, that all of these different groups would be protesting against a some animal testing on a mouse. Yeah, it felt quite forced. And in a sense, I, maybe this isn't fair, but one, knowing a little bit, not too much about the history of the writing of the novel, you wonder if, as it had been bought by the, the publishing company, whether it was slightly rushed. That was the feeling I got. To be ah, I mean, that would make sense. And I know what you mean about the second part, not having quite the magic 
of the first part. Well, there's a film podcast I like, and in a slightly pretentious way, one of the things they do is when they're rating a film, they rate how you feel while you were watching the film and then how you feel now reflecting on the film. And I would say that my appraisal of the novel got slightly more negative the more I thought about it Mm -hmm. once I'd read it, once I let it sit for a while. Mm -hmm. And that, that was all to do with the second half of it. And mm-hmm. certainly that certainly the final part. I don't hate this part. I don't think it's terrible or badly written. It's just plot points. And to me, an over-reliance on coincidence, and I think there's a lot of that here, is slightly is not a sign of of good writing, I'm afraid. Sorry, sorry, Sadie Smith. I would not be able to write this anywhere near as well as she does. But I, I was disappointed, to be honest with you. Yeah, and who knows if um, that's one of the things that she talks about or that she's thinking about when she is reflecting on writing it in these podcasts that we listen to. Um, she might be thinking about things like that, to be honest. Uh, and we'll never really know why that happened, but I, that is a good point to make. Then it needed to get done. And so you kind of, you fall to devices maybe that work maybe once, but when you repeat them very often, it, having the book rely on that doesn't really work as well. Yeah, I think being funny allows, and it is funny all the way through and the ending is funny, but that the comedy almost can allow extra sort of things to kind of slip through, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not sure how much I like the depiction of the Chalfins, to be honest with you. Uh, it was at that point where I began to take the, the book slightly less seriously, I think. Oh, um, I think it's because you're an, a white middle class British man and you're coming from maybe a very similar background from the Chalfins. With yeah, well, <laughs> finding yourself well, offended. I don't. What, you know, when will people think of the white middle class people? Why is the whole world against us? <laughs> no, nothing, nothing ever goes our way. No, so, no, I am. I am aware of that. And it, that is possibly true. And yeah, you could be right about that. But even the contrivance of the two twins as well. That's like have, yeah, I know. No, I think be, because the book's funny, as I said, you can kind of let these things pass. But the more I thought about it, I thought, oh, yeah, he has two twins and they both get westernized, but in slightly different ways. One, you know, becomes one becomes kind of quite a middle-class person himself and one becomes this gangster wannabe. And they have a meeting, don't they? Is that in part four? When Majid comes back from Bangladesh, him and Milat are in such disagreement about the involvement of Majid in Future Mouse that they can't see each other. And then they have this big meeting and it's pretty underwhelming, I think. Yeah. Samad, he sent his son, one of his sons away. He sent Majid away in order to become a lot you know be the the redeemed son to help how would you explain that he feels samad i think that he's becoming corrupt corrupted by the west and that's epitomized in the affair he has with the music teacher and he wonders he needs to redeem one of his sons and he really kind of deliberates on which one he should redeem but he feels that majid is more redeemable because he's more likely the way he sees it, to go to Bangladesh and become like the good kind of Muslim son. And that's mm. not what happens at all. He goes and he becomes even more Western in a, in a strange way. Well, he becomes atheist. He completely yeah, yeah. throws religion off and, and becomes this more up, like middle class, um, very educated. So in that way, Alsan is very happy. Yes, but yeah. Um, yeah, he's completely just said yes. And my conclusion is that religion is meaningless. Whereas you then have Millet, who has gone so extreme the other way that he's turned to like fundamentalist Islam, mm-hmm. which is very upsetting to Samad and Alsana at the same time yes. as well. Yeah, so yeah. he didn't really get anything that he wanted in sending his sons away. And who knows what the outcome would have been. They might have just been two very Western, but very happy kids if he well kept maybe they st- yeah maybe they still will be you know the novel seems to end with them quite happy i think mm-hmm. um, would you like to read the second part of zadie smith's biography yes i would so Uh, Smith followed White Teeth with The Autograph Man, which, like so many second novels to acclaimed debuts, was considered something of a disappointment. Her third novel, On Beauty, which is set around Boston and Massachusetts, not Lincolnshire, for all of you 
uh, British listeners. Um, it received a more positive reception. She then wrote and published Martha and Hanwell, which comprises two pairs of short stories. Smith started working at New York University as a tenured professor of fiction in 2010, where I believe she still works now. N.W., her fourth full-length novel, was published in 2012, and this was followed by Swing Time in 2016, a book which is inspired by her childhood fondness for tap dancing. Her first collection of short stories came out in 2019. She has also published several collections of essays, including Changing My Mind, Occasional Essays in 2009, Feel Free in 2018, and Intimations in 2020, which I believe is a set of pieces about the pandemic. She is married to Northern Irish poet and novelist Nick Laird, who she met at university, as we said before. She says that she pursued him there, but he wasn't interested. And we touched on that a bit before as well. They got together long after university. He is referred to in White Teeth. Did you catch this? Uh, no, I didn't. I just saw it on the Wikipedia. <laughs> okay. I feel like I I um, read that part, but I never put two and two together that she was married to him. So that's quite cute. I think, oh, adorable. Uh, she now divides her time between London and New York. Yep. Sure. As far as I know, she still does. Now that's a great life, isn't it? Very glamorous. Just, just yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm yeah, she sort of talks, doesn't she, about being friends with like David Foster Wallace and things like that. So. Yeah, yeah, quite a cool life, I think she leads. Yeah. Hard to maintain during a pandemic, probably though. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would yeah. imagine so. Yeah. Do you want to do a couple of fun questions before we get going? Yes, sure. Yes. Do you want to ask me one? Mm -hmm. Gary, leaflets, 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 leaflets are all over the place in this book and they seem to play a big role has a leaflet ever changed your life no i don't think so i can't think of a time when i've seen something on a leaflet and it's <laughs> led me down any uh, -huh. uh significant path but it was something that i noticed quite strongly in the book i think it's very endemic of maybe the 80s and the 90s that everybody's giving out leaflets mm -hmm. aren't they Kevin have leaflets, fates have leaflets, <laughs> you know, they're, they're all over the place. The Jehovah's Witnesses, they have the um, the magazine, which I, I believe they still deliver. Is it Watchtower? That's, mm. that's kind of part of that kind of trend as well. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I don't think I've ever been that impacted by a leaflet. They normally go straight in the recycling. Would you shoot a Nazi if you came across one? Any I think everyone gun? likes to say that they would, wouldn't they? Like, mm -hmm. oh, uh what if just someone was if i had a gun and then a nazi started walking down the street at I suppose, me um maybe the context question, <laughs> yeah there is no context maybe um if you're in a similar position to archie you had a gun and you're walking down the road with a nazi and you know that you're supposed to shoot him uh -huh. um so you're taking a human life but you're aware that he's done bad things but it's an intelligent human because he's a doctor what would, do you know what you would do i would shoot him yeah would you yeah it's a a, a nazi war criminal okay. yeah no question i would shoot him mm -hmm. would you no i don't mm. think i would i think i'd chicken out i'd probably do what archie did i think and just let him go i think i'd just say okay I'll, stop i'd probably say something don't like, do it again <laughs> please yeah, you've, you've got to stop all this naughtiness <laughs> now <laughs> you're putting it behind you you got a new life Yes, tell me that you promise, and <laughs> you know, and if they did, then yeah, I would probably let them go. I, so if I was in Archie's position, I'd probably say, okay, you can go, but you have to go with them for yourself, and I would leave it in the hands of, in the hand of fate, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Shall we finish on that note? Should we do um <laughs> on that happy happy note? Yes. So this final quote is a paragraph from part two, chapter 10, called The Root Canals of Mangal Pandy. And it talks about O'Connell's, which is the pub that Archie and Samad frequently go to um, discuss very important things. When Samad is having a problem, they meet up there and they eat some food. They talk with some of the other guys there and they kind of sort out their, sort out their stuff. So we thought that this would be a good 
way to end the episode on a quote about O'Connell's. Sound good? Yes, definitely. Finally, O'Connell's. Inevitably, O'Connell's. Simply because you could be without family in O'Connell's, without possessions or status, without past glory or future hope. You could walk through that door with nothing and be exactly the same as everybody else in there. It could be 1989 outside or 1999 or 2009, and you could still be sitting at the counter in the V-neck you wore to your wedding in 1975, 1945, 1935. Nothing changes here. Things are only retold, remembered. That's why old men love it. It's all about time. Not just its stillness, but the pure brazen amount of it. Quantity rather than quality. This is hard to explain. If only there was some equation, something like time spent here over time that I could have usefully spent elsewhere, multiplied by enjoyment and masochism equals reason why I am a regular. Okay, that was very well read. I like that quote. I like that equation. Yeah, I really like it as well. I love the parts about O'Connell's. I mean, I've, I've been a little bit disparaging about the book towards the end, but there are parts of it which are fantastically written. And I should say that I really, really enjoyed it. It's still a, still a great book. Yeah, I enjoyed it too. And it was, yeah, a really great introduction to her work. And I'm sure the more the, the more of her that we read, the, the more that we're going to like her. And um, I'm excited to get into more stuff by her eventually. And yeah, some yeah. episodes it's, on it too. Yeah, that's something I'd be very keen to do as well. Okay, thank you guys for listening to us discuss White Teeth by Zadie Smith. And we hope to see you again with another episode very soon. Yep, I'm looking forward to it. Thanks very much. All right, bye, bye Gary. Bye, bye everybody. Bye-bye.